Hi, my name is Robs. I'm addicted to shrimp of questionable quality. Oh my God, it feels so great to finally say that. Last week, I lost five shrimp. And you know what? I realized I hit rock bottom when I found myself frantically digging through a back alley dumpster looking for a discarded laptop to order replacement shrimp when I could have just originally ordered shrimp from joeshrimpshack.com. So from the comfort of my own laptop, I'm going to go to Joe Shrimp Shack and order some shrimp and not dig in a dumpster anymore. <laughs> JoeShrimpShack.com. Stop digging in dumpsters. A couple more things to tell you guys about. We now have our new merch store that is just fully launched. We worked hard on it. We got some new designs. We got a certified aquarium guy, certified aquarium gal for you ladies. We also have the you know, punch, your, <laughs> punch yourself in the throat shirts, uh, making fun of antlers that they're feeder guppies. Guys, check it out. Even the go fluke yourself shirts. You know? uh, check it out. We put a lot of work into it. Um, use promo code ROBS. Adam or Jimmy at checkout for five percent off. Uh, just choose your who's your favorite aquarium guys host. We do have a competition amongst ourselves, so uh, of course I'm the best. R O B B Z five percent off. Get some merch. One more thing is the Bashir handbook is now out. We certainly have the link in the descriptions. Wonderful handbook. They are doing pre-orders. I believe if you're a cool kid, you can even get it signed. I don't know if that's still going on or not, but it's $33 US. Certainly check it out, the Bashir Handbook. We had Josh on the podcast before. Wonderful book. Finally glad it's getting out. Let's kick that podcast. Aquarium Guys Podcast with your hosts, Jim Colby and Rob Zolson. Welcome to the party, ladies and gentlemen. Jimmy? Yes. Are you ready? Oh, I'm so ready. We're, we're now under lockdown in Minnesota for another four weeks. High five. High five. Woo! I get to do the same oh, as I was I doing before. You. Coronavirus, not it. Staying at home, working from home. Ah. <sighs> Well, today, uh, I got to give a shout out to Peter the Sunfish Guy. This right? is for you, Peter. We've had a bunch of different requests from people because the popularity of keeping sunfish have been rising everywhere. But uh, this episode is going to be uh, wholeheartedly on uh, sunfish. And if you need to know sunfish, it's a genre of cichlids in North America that we have in local waterways that taste delicious. They're, they're, they're dandy delicious. They are what we call panfish in North America. But now people are seeing that pumpkin seeds, bluegills, and others are looking beautiful, especially in European aquariums. So, Peter the Sunfish Guy, this episode's for you and all the others have requested it. But we are proud to have Mandy from the Minnesota DNR back on again to talk about sunfish. How you doing, Mandy? I'm great. Thanks for having me back. It's it's our pleasure. You, you've been demanded back. Frankly. She said that with hesitation. Did you get that? I just you <laughs> feel the gonna, nervousness. Just like, thanks a lot, guys. <laughs> Feel the nervousness. Uh, thanks, I think. So, you know, no, it's you guys are a lot of fun. I love what you're doing, and it's great to be involved and kind of broaden your horizons a little bit in a different area. And I, I think it's, I think it's great. I'm happy to be here. I mean, hey, 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 Robs. All all fish people need to stay together, even the ones that you know 
make us buy fishing licenses because we should take care of our natural resources. Remember the one rule she had last time. Rule? The one one rule she gave us last time: don't get me fired. Oh, I thought it don't was get me don't. Fired. That's what she said. Don't get me fired. I thought it was don't touch the mounted animals in the office. Yeah, quit licking the <laughs> quit licking the animals. I will not give you Bigfoot secrets. Don't pet the animals and don't get me fired. So Lovely. yeah, that's about it. Oh. I have so many Bigfoot <laughs> questions. I really do. Well, I am your host, Rob Zolson. I'm Jim Colby. And I'm Adam Elnishar. Jimmy. Yes. I, I've had a I've had a fun week. I went to our buddy Ty up in Brainerd, Minnesota. Yes. And bought some uh, bonds of tanks. Yes. And uh, I'm super excited. I'm finishing my shrimp rack, Jimmy. Yeah, it's about time. It's only been a six-month process, but, you know, it's like... 22 two-and-a-half-gallon aquariums. Yes. And then I'm having two six-inch by six-inch by 48-inch weird looking aquariums next to them so it's going to be just a wall of tanks it's gonna be great i'm excited for you i needed this after i broke my 125 yeah rob's broke his 125 aquarium and, and he's still crying about it but i am and i lost a testicle bringing it up the stairs but uh in <laughs> other yeah see there you go so you're down from you're down to two now because you started with three i'm so glad you guys can do math what we have is a review says Great show, five stars. You guys make me so feel so much better about myself. <laughs> I like this. So somebody's um, review was, you make me feel be- so much better about myself. Right. So uh, I feel like that's uh, insinuating to me on the Storytime podcast. Uh, I There's many different different episodes that that could relate to. Yeah, it could be you and the ghost. It could be. Yeah. Very much. Hashtag Sarah. Yeah. By the way, no one has still sent me looking up Frazy, Minnesota, the clip of Jimmy on the paper. Uh, what year was that? A long time ago. Come on. You got to give them more information. I'm willing to give t-shirts out here. I don't know. I'd have to look back. It was uh, probably about 15 years ago already. I feel like that's a story we should confess to Mandy uh, after the podcast. But uh, we're going to go to uh, a couple of the reviews. And this last week, Jimmy, I have not told you this. And I have not told Adam either. But uh, we've been reached out by the Little Egyptian Aquarium Club in Southern Illinois uh, they want us to speak. Really? Right. Wait, is this an actual thing? Actual. <laughs> it's not Rob's mom this time. Yeah. Actual confirmed aquarium club that wants us to speak. And uh, they they just they just were fans. Apparently, they just they heard our our call. Says that we'll speak at aquarium clubs. Not a problem. They contacted us and they're like, "So, what do you want us to talk about?" And we're like, "We have no idea." <laughs> That's good. <laughs> I will give them some Bigfoot. Information. Right. Well, we're, after I get this, you're from, expert on Bigfoot. After I get it from Mandy here later right. on this night. <laughs> I'm just confused on why they're called the Little Egyptian. I don't Fish know. Club. I thought I thought you were making a joke because you know I'm half Egyptian. I so. mean that that I maybe maybe that's what it was. Is we have you on and they decided to call us. But re- regardless, I'm shout like out this. to those guys. Yes, thank you. We have uh, a little Egyptian of our own, so we feel you. <laughs> We've got a big Egyptian of our own. <laughs> Okay, this is from Rex, by the way, another uh, longtime fan. I haven't laughed so hard in ages, especially about Rob's experience with this old air pump. Ha, ha, oh, no, we're not love sure. the experience. I was working today, a little bit mortified, not usually shocked with him, but had a great laugh. Um, also was very interested in Adam's scorpions, though he likes to keep dangerous creatures. Uh, love your stuff. Five out of five. Uh, Rex from Australia. So, there you go. Excellent. Oh, he's in Australia? Indeed. I can't get him to him there. I mean, <laughs> you can't send scorpions. No, I, I wouldn't do that at all. <laughs> Not those. Australian well, I mean, you don't even have those anymore. No, but I was going to get some. So if you're wondering, uh, 
what's going on. Certainly listen to the Storytime 3 podcast. We talk about how Adam had a pet sh- uh, shop and had these super, like, human deadly scorpions just arrive at his store that he had to turn in and all kinds of details. That was just crazy. That ended up on somebody's backpack from Pakistan. Is that correct? Iraq? Where it was, was Iraq yep. is what I was able to figure out. And then it was crawling. The scorpion was crawling up her daughter's leg. And she's like three or four, I think, two or four. I don't remember. But And she went icky and she brushed it off. And then the mom stopped the car and caught it in a jar and dropped it off at my shop. And I thought it was like a native one until I realized it was eating all the native U.S. ones. Yeah, that, super bright. I mean, you didn't you didn't intend to make a Thunderdome, but it just kind of happened by mistake. It, it happened by mistake, and I pulled it out and kept it by itself, and and then uh, the local authorities got mad, and so I froze them. Well, I mean, that's you call the local authorities, so you did the right thing, you know. That's why we have Mandy on here. <laughs> uh, um, we got another one from Peter. This is this Peter Sunfish guy. Uh, he says, uh, King Tiger Placos L333 come in white and yellow forms. If I mix them and bred them, would I get a mix ratio of each species or s- uh, some man-made fish that I can't breed? Um, I don't know about King uh, King Placos. They're, uh, King Tiger Placos is what they are. They're not that terribly common in the hobby. They're kind of like what we call a poor man's uh, zebra placo. They're about oh. 40 bucks, give or take, where you find them. And, of course, COVID adjusts all those prices continually. But any placo that you have like that, and they come in different variations. So I'm going to use the example of bristlenose placos because they're quite common to breed. I have albinos. I have browns. If I mix them, I get either a weird mix blotchy pattern or I have some outcome perfectly brown and perfectly albino. And that's generally a uh, consensus whenever you mix. The majority of them just blotch out. And if you don't know what their lineage is, you know. <clears throat> who knows? What, what were their parents? You don't know. So you, it's a crapshoot. You're rolling the dice. Be, Say that again, Adam. Guess, sorry. My guess would be that they would be the normal. Uh, they would look like the normal ones. Because I'm guessing that the white is a recessive. Right. I, I wouldn't guess I'm, that they wouldn't be anything different just because that yellow is not real real prominent in those. But again, I'm not an expert on those. I have not bred those. I've had friends that do, and I've never heard of mix them. There's so many different Placo varieties that having a one so close to another, just a yellow variety versus a white, that you shouldn't see much of a difference when you breed them. Now, we have people that breed, you know, like completely crazy Placos together, like clowns with... Uh, um. I forgot what the the other hybrid was, but they some of them even come out ster- sterile. I, oh. I don't I don't know why, but it's hey, it's, Rob. it's a it's a it's a crapshoot. Adam, oh, she's back, back. <gasps> she she accidentally ended up in tank talk for some reason. I didn't even I'm, see where she went. I'm still trying to find your place where the messages are. I'm clicking away, and I clicked <laughs> myself out of here. Well, anyway, just carry a, on. Never just, mind. I'm back. Can someone put a bell on her? <laughs> just put a bell on her. Yeah. <laughs> For those that are uh, listening, if you guys want to join the debauchery live, we do these on Mondays. We try to do them 7 p.m. Central on Mondays. We're never on time. Come join us, AquariumGuysPodcast.com. Bottom of the uh, webpage, you'll see a link for Discord. That's where we're uh, recording these. And we also have it on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash AquariumGuys, because we're cool now, Jimmy. 
I did not know that. Right. So if you want to ask questions, we have a channel called podcast-live-chat, and people are already filling in this because Mandy's been a uh, uh, highly demanded guest to come back on the show. All right. I think that does it for questions this week, Jimmy. Any other uh, additions? I've got nothing, man. It's been. Oh, a... no, no, no. We have something. Oh, Jim. that's right. Yes. Adam, please. Go. You, Adam, start this out. I found it and I sent it out to these guys. Okay. So we're talking about the idiot that is suing PetSmart because his koi died. Now, I would like to put out, because I heard about this a little bit as well. Uh, we have no stance on this other than you should always have the best thought of your fish's health in mind. But please do continue. Okay. So he's suing PetSmart because the fish had a bacterial infection and they died and he has mental trauma and distress. And he says Pet PetSmart or Pet, I think it was PetSmart, wasn't it, Jim? I'm trying to pull it up right now. I think it was Petco, but I'm not real sure, to be honest. Yeah, either either one. And he says one of the two. Hours. It's, it's PetSmart. I got it right it's here. It's PetSmart. Okay, yeah. The gentleman okay. is from Long Island. And he's suing PetSmart for emotional distress after dozens of koi die. He didn't sleep because of the fishes. That's what it says. Whoa, whoa. And, and I'm, I think that was like a really bad writer's pun. Yeah. Or like he didn't yeah. sleep with the fishes, but instead he's like, he because didn't of, sleep because yeah. of the fishes. So the idea is this gentleman uh, built a massive pond in his backyard, uh, got all the expert advice on how to build it, all the details, spent an exuberant amount of money on special as he called Japanese koi and he spent uh, 12,000 bucks on them. It was he he way overpaid on these fish in my opinion. If you'd like to get yourself some koi, we're not sponsored by these uh, this gentleman, but uh, Bickle Koi uh, Farms is right out of uh um what's the state right below us? Iowa. Iowa. Toddsville, Iowa, and he's been farming there for years. Certainly get it if you want to start koi. They're they're um definitely uh, in, more inexpensive. He's got pretty darn good quality. And it's been his same strains for the last like twenty years. Yeah, if you if you read the the whole thing, he went and bought koi from everywhere. Yeah, he bought a little bit of everything from everybody, and then decided that throw them all together in a four thousand gallon pond as one giant quarantine tub, <laughs> and then said that he had red streaks going across all his fish, which of course is a sign of a uh, you know vicious bacterial infection, and they crapped out, and he suing for. Emotional damages and large. I, I don't feel sorry for the guy. I feel sorry for the fish dying, but you can't blame Petco PetSmart or wherever he bought all of his twelve thousand dollars worth of fish from. I, this you is know, not. It's called quarantine, people. There's not yeah. a ton of times where we sit back and just try to defend Petco, but honestly, if you're having a pet, you're responsible for knowing knowing how to care or taking the time to learn with someone like a great podcast. <laughs> uh, cough. So, so and then that brought up the story of. The guy that had half a million dollars worth of koi in Michigan in a pond, and he the pond froze over because the electricity went out, so all the water features and the water heater went out, and he took an axe to the pond, and the vibrations of the axe hitting ricocheted off the bottom, and then the, the vibrations killed all of his fish. And so, but he just felt stupid. You know, he didn't go and sue somebody because that happened. So if your pond's ever freeze and you have fish outside, melt the water with, like, hot water or something. Don't, you know, hit it with a hammer or axe or anything else. That's for the northern people. Something. Yeah. Just, yeah. just melt it. 
So if you're interested in this, it's from, it's from the New York Post. And um, anyway, we will put a link on it uh, so you guys can read about it and decide for yourself. But uh, the guy did everything wrong and, uh, of course, blames everybody else. So. Of course. So last thing we do before we get into the interview with, uh, with Mandy about Sunfish is uh, we've had demand of making a new merch line. So we've taken some time, and we decided to, you know, shop some ideas. We're going to do a, more. But the first four T-shirts, Adam has not seen, so I'm pretty excited. They are in uh, podcast live chat, Adam. The first one is Certified Aquarium Guy. I think it's pretty classy. Then we have Time to Punch a Throat. Just uh, you're for, for you, Jimmy. Yep. Uh, we also have where the word Endler just scratched out and says Feeder Guppies. Just for you, Adam. You guys are and also the the famous go fluke yourself because you know we we decide to censor our swears around here. I, I'm buying two of those. Are you? I, I figured it was going to be three, and then that certain Endler one was being ignored. Is that for your in laws? Well, one of them I'm going to wear for the in laws because you know Thanksgiving and Christmas is coming. There you up, go. So Always looking out for us. I might wear that at work too at one of my jobs. <laughs> So we're just getting the final drafts uh, finished here, so you'll see the store up soon. Certainly, you know, watch our social media or come to Discord to see if we have T-shirts available yet. That's right around the bend. Christmas. We'll have something, hopefully, so you can put it in your stocking for Christmas. That's right. All right. Well, if we have nothing else. I think it's time to go. Time to go. Mandy, again, thanks so much for being patient. How has things changed? Because we, (laughs) the last time we spoke... We could see each other in person. Now we're remote. How has uh, the things at the DNR been handling since uh, since COVID? Oh, where do we even begin with that? So it hit uh, us pretty hard in terms of, as a state agency, what the appropriate response will be. So it was mid-March, I guess, uh, thinking back, that as soon as this the governor put in the first recommendations of everything needs to uh, try and retract back to your home and work from home as much as you can. Um, we followed that immediately. I had no choice. And all of our field work was put on hold. All of our office offices were switched to telework. And it's kind of been that way ever since. Um, throughout the spring, we made some hard pushes to try and get approval to operate our spawn takes and our hatcheries, and that was not approved. Uh, The hatchery that I work at has a history of operating for almost 110 years, and this was the first year that we were not allowed to operate. So, um, you know, I'm thinking back to April, which was when that uh, hatchery stuff would have started for us. We really didn't know a lot about if the world was going to end, if the sky was falling, what what this was going to do for us. So so the response was just, you know, basically hide <laughs> to protect our staff, to protect everyone, to protect our families. And um, we've learned a lot since then. Throughout the summer, we did seek and receive approval to do quite a bit of field work. We have been able to um, resume some of our activities. We have a lot of social distance guidance in place. Um, masks, masks are mandated. Um, similar to anything you would in any other business. We have to justify how we can do our work safely in order for it to be approved. And we have been able to pick things up a little bit at a time. So it's getting better. Um, But again, I I will credit that to all of us learning more about what we can and what we cannot do safely 
and and our agency and the state as a whole has really done a great job valuing the work that we do, making sure that we're safe, not putting us at risk, and um, still trying to get whatever critical portions of our job done that that we can safely. So it coming at it, everyone's frustrated. Everyone's got COVID fatigue is a real thing. And uh, but but when you take a step back and you look at it, I, I, I do think we've handled it as well as we possibly can. Now, Mandy, th this summer, I did see that you guys were able to put people out at the docks and stuff to check for um, invasive, species. invasive species and stuff. Um, how did that change? Did they have to wear masks all the time out there in the field and stuff? That DNR actually hires very few of those. And what they're talking about is um, at a lot of the state public accesses, there are inspectors to make sure that you're not transporting water or plants or fish or anything like that um, out of a lake out of concern for spreading invasive species. So many, most of those that you see are not actually hired directly by DNR. They're hired through watershed districts or counties or lake associations, often with grant monies received from DNR, but not directly from DNR. So as a result, they are not bound by our rules of what they can and cannot do. They're, they're working for somebody else. So if something would come up, um, are they able to contact you and, uh, and get some assistance? Yes. Yep, most of them do not have law enforcement duties. They are there mostly as an advisory role or you know trying to encourage people to do the right thing and make good decisions and then if they if they do have people that are problematic, they can call for enforcement um, action to be taken or write down license plates or whatever they need to do. but but the people themselves don't often have law enforcement um, authority. Perfect. Well, Again, what we uh, asked you to come for is this popularity. So, Mandy, what I want to do is just start out by, for our listeners as well, because they may not know of what's happening is uh, happening uh, that we're seeing at least. And this may be an isolated issues, or we've just been you know picked on, but we've been noticing that uh, there's been a lot more questions. And again, our podcast is worldwide. We're based in Minnesota because that's where we live, but we have so many fans out the country, Europe, Australia, all over, and. This it applies differently everywhere, so we'll get to legalities later. But right now, we're just trying to um, get more information on sunfish. And sunfish are again a popular aquarium craze. Sunfish are a type of uh, cichlid native to our area, and the reason we reached out back to you not only because by demand and fit, but because Minnesota, you know, has eighteen thousand ish lakes, and where better to uh, find out than almost every lake having sunfish in it in Minnesota? So. <laughs> What we want to do is go over questions on how they are their natural habitat, how they breed, um, size they're getting, and then issues you're, they're seeing in a natural habitat, and maybe just a couple of the species, because there's different types of sunfish. But uh, to start off with, what does Minnesota have for sunfish? Well, Minnesota, you know, when you say sunfish and I say sunfish and your top fan in Australia say sunfish, you're going to be talking about likely three different things. So Minnesota loves to throw sunfish and panfish and centrarchids all kind of in the same mix. So when when you say sunfish, what I think we're talking about are going to be bluegills, pumpkin seeds green sunfish and the hybridization of any of those mixed together. Though that's typically what, what I think of as sunfish. Um, some people will throw black crappies and rock bass and white crappies into that mix as well. 
and then I heard mention earlier of bass, so largemouth bass and smallmouth bass. So all of those are going to be very, very different. Um, but for for the general speaking, when you say sunfish, I'm going to assume we're talking about bluegills, pumpkin seeds, green sunfish, and the hybridization of any of those. Is that fair game? Uh, the, the the species that we're seeing, especially people that are asking about, are number one green sunfish. They're they're really okay. popular in Europe. Uh, bluegills are not so much, or if they do, they come in hybridized because of how they were bred in a farm. And people are trying to get a hold of pumpkin seeds because what we call pumpkin seeds, because they are just breathtaking, honestly. So right. the only other thing we hear is like some other uh, red ear sunfish, but it it's really does not come up. It's almost exclusively green and into pumpkin seeds. Okay, which isn't surprising because green sunfish are the most tolerant of poor habitat conditions <laughs> than yes. any of our sunfish. And pumpkin seeds on the flip side are going to have the most uh, specific habitat requirements. Pumpkin seeds are only going to be found in, in lakes that have really great natural habitat, and that would be good water quality, um, low chance of winter kill, great emergent and submergent vegetation that keeps that water clarity really well, um, not a lot of parasites, not a lot of competition from green sunfish, um, but so they're going to be a little more picky about where they're going to be. They're not as widespread. Green sunfish are almost as hard to kill as fathead minnows and bullheads. So they're, they're again, one of the, they're tolerant of really poor habitat conditions, which makes them pretty widespread. They're some of the last fish to succumb to winter kill when we, in Minnesota, all of our lakes freeze over and our oxygen is limited throughout the winter, but green sunfish can basically live in a mud puddle for the winter and be just fine. So they also breed like crazy and will hybridize with everything. On an aquarium side of it, they're also the most apt to jump out of an aquarium next to Northern Pike. So if you're one that has green sunfish, you better have a lid on your tank because they're jumpers. So, so it's not surprising that, that greens are, are the most common and pumpkin seeds are rare. The, the male pumpkin seeds are absolutely gorgeous. But again, they're going to be a product of their environment, and, and it's just not something you see being able, likely to be kept successfully without major issues because of a, of a poor environment condition. And like you said, I think it's, number one, hard to get a hold of in some of these other countries, especially Europe, because you said before they're a little bit more delicate. And these places that they're getting the, in the sunfish from are certain farms in North America that do this. And again, I don't know a single farm in uh, Minnesota that ever exports or has a license to export. So this is probably like somewhere in Texas or something. But again, they're trying to uh, they export to Europe. And no one essentially that I know of farms pumpkin seed on the regular as far as like a commercial product. Generally, they try to do the, some of the pan fish in certain areas where they have licenses to sell for food. And if you can't find uh, someone to farm a pumpkin seed more than likely you're going to have some state law preventing them being harvested, moved, bred, farmed, and shipped. So trying to find pumpkin seed, especially in a legal method, is going to be very hard for people out of country to do unless, again, they're in the native area. Now, I grew up in a, uh, right on a lake. I grew up with pumpkin seeds, and I can confirm that uh, in my area, uh, my lake is was 65 to 70 feet deep. And it was extremely crystal clear, and we had no real parasite problems. But if I ever traveled to another lake, uh, immediately pumpkin seeds were the ones that had the most parasites of any other sunfish. Is that 
accurate or is that just my luck? I would not to say you're incorrect because I wouldn't want to do that, but I would, I would blame bad luck on that one. Um, and, and some lakes are just more paras- more heavy in parasites than others. And, you know, we'll see a lot of neascus, that black spot on pumpkin seeds and bluegills. And, you know, in my experience too, it just seems like those pure strain fish are more susceptible to the parasites than say your hybrids or your green sunfish or whatever else. Now I'm not, that's not documented by any, that's my right. 23 years of experience looking at game fish in Minnesota lakes, but um, not, I don't, I wouldn't say that pumpkins are the most susceptible. Um, often when you get those parasites in every lake is going to be different, but they're, they're a product of some other condition in the lake as well. You know, you're not going to have awesome water clarity, water quality, habitat preservation, emergent vegetation, habitat spawning substrate and everything else. And a bunch of non-desirables. You're going to have kind of a decrease in, in, um, habitat availability, if you will, I guess, and you'll start seeing some of those other issues. But I wouldn't say that that pumpkin seeds are the most susceptible. I'm just going to say they're they're really picky about their environment, and and it's believable that there aren't people that farm them because I think it would be extremely hard to do successfully because of their requirements. Now, real quick, if you see a pumpkin seed that doesn't have great color, does that give you an indication that the lake isn't doing well? I mean, do their colors change? Because I know with all of our aquarium fish, if the color changes, you can tell they're stressed out and, and uh, you, you need to treat or do a water change. Yep, same thing with uh, native fish as well. Um, and also breeding colors. If they're spawning, those males will just be brilliant, brilliant colors. But if they're in, you know, middle of winter, they're not going to be as as brilliant colors as as spawning time. And if they're in murky water or, you know, even if you catch one at night, it, the colors are going to kind of bleed out almost, you know, if you put a clear white background in your aquarium, at least I have in the past, you notice some of the colors bleed out of some of the fish and, and it'll be kind of a product of their environment, but then it's also the time of year and the age of that fish too. you know, an old, an old mature spawning fish is going to have a different color scheme than, than a younger fish, younger and mature fish. That, make, that makes sense. Cause my, my grandmother's got blue hair. There you go. It just happened overnight. Yeah. Cotton candy. But no, that's that's pretty common with, uh, you know, the other cichlids, like African cichlids that we have is, you know, even rainbow fish. You do a water change just from the temperature and maybe because it's fresh water, putting it in the tank, immediately they change color and just brighten up for that day. Yep, they can tell you they're happy. So, I mean, that's just, uh, you know, temperature, water quality. Uh, are they stressed? What time is it? Did they Were they sleeping? There's so many variables for color. Yep. Again, we're going to go down the whole gamut because most people that are listening to this, at least I would assume, have never, uh, of course, thought of having a sunfish and, uh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. never heard of it before. So for the three species that we're talking about, what sizes do they get in uh, best conditions? In best conditions in a lake, um, 10 inches is impressive. You know, some lakes that are not heavily fished, and have a long history of having some great populations will readily grow 10 inch sunfish. And those are fantastic to catch. They're targeted by anglers, especially here in Minnesota, the winter angling pressure for uh, large sunfish is just ridiculous. Actually, Minnesota is right in the middle of proposing some new sunfish regulations to 
limit the amount of fish that you can harvest from the wild in an effort to try and preserve some of those fish um, and allow them to continue to grow and maintain that population of large sunfish that we have. Despite Minnesota being kind of known as the walleye state and walleyes being such a high profile species, sunfish are actually the most caught and the most targeted fish in the state because they're they're easy to catch. All you need is a pretty simple fishing rod and whatever worm you can find under a rock on the shore and a small hook, you can fish from shore. Um, you know, it's easy to catch a bunch of them in a day. It's a great thing to get kids started on. So the, there's a huge push for um, maintaining our sunfish regulation or sunfish population here in Minnesota. But to get back to what you, what your question was, 10 inches is pretty good. If you're fishing off of a, a dock and you're just fishing with leftover corn from dinner or whatever it may be, it's really common to catch a ton of three, four, five inch sunfish. But unless you're really good with a knife, those are hard to fillet and hard to eat. So, Yeah, commonly referred to as uh, fishy nuggets at my house. At, uh, yep. And when you only have a limit, I think is what, 10 now? You, you don't really get much of a meal out of it unless you have everybody fish. No, I will share this, though. My, we have a swim raft out in our lake, and um, there's you may have, I'm sure you've talked about uh, fish like this in the past, but sunfish, were, they're kind of mean little buggers. And if you have any birthmarks or moles or nail polish or jewelry on, Scabs. they think that you are breakfast. So at our swim raft that we had in our yard, my daughter and I were out there and we were just getting nailed. And she said, that's it. We're catching these things and we're eating them. So she and I went and, and uh, took our fishing rods up to the swim raft and caught our limit and filleted every little three and four inch one we had. And they never bit us again. So that was kind of our revenge for the day. But <laughs> so, so it's possible. You can eat them. I wouldn't recommend it. And if it was anything out of pure spite, I don't know that we would have done it, but. Did you dangle the heads back in the water as if a warning to the other one? No. Just, just no. let a sign happen, and then the catfish comes up and gobbles it. Now, in captivity, I, I've heard of uh, some crazy uh, measurements of, like, uh, I think the bluegill is probably going to be the biggest. I don't know if you you uh, can uh, attest to this, but I have, like, 14 inches. What's the state record on some of these sunfish? Oh, man. I got you. You know what? You did, Goog but I have Google, I have Google at my hand. <laughs> um, in a in a captive environment, it wouldn't surprise me actually if green sunfish were larger. Um, but because of the body shape of green sunfish, green sunfish are going to be a little longer. Bluegills, when they when they grow, they're going to be, you know, they're going to be almost as round as they are high or wide as they are high. We're Green sunfish, when they get bigger, they tend to widen out and almost look more like largemouth bass. Gotcha. Um, well, I, I got but... the, I got, see, state records are different because they're, they're trying to hit game fish, right? This is a, right. a, a popular fished uh, product, so they do by pounds. So two pounds, yeah, 13 they don't ounces. Have two pounds, 13 ounces, and green sunfish is one pound, four ounce. But again, I think if you're measuring from snout to tail, I'd, I yeah I would be surprised if the green sunfish weren't larger. Gotcha. So yeah, captivity. That's, that's big. Captivity. That's big. You're trying to emulate a perfect environment. They have food every day. They're not competing, working the calories out. They can just be essentially a fat, happy, lazy fish, and you can get some of normal sizes. Uh, the perfect example is the um, paku. The paku in the wild only goes so big, um, somewhere around like what uh, eighteen inches, twenty inches. And 
in aquarium environments, we know from the Ohio Fish Rescue and others that they get bigger than garbage can sizes. We're talking some of them go to like car hoods, like incredible sizes. So in an aquarium environment with some of these fish, in perfect food conditions, they can grow to obscene uh, obscene sizes. But uh, again, I haven't had a lot of sunfish in, in an aquarium. I've only gone from uh, people right. that, have, uh, that have held them in other, in other areas. So, well, and once they, once, once you have, and I've, I have kept sunfish and we can get into the reasons of why and how and when you can keep them. Um, the food is, is a big issue for them. Um, what they, what they feed on and how much of that food you give them, obviously. But, um, the, for the, for the sunfish that I've had experience with, they're not big flake food eaters. You've got to go into the bloodworms and brine shrimp and things like that. And then it just becomes a supply issue of, for, for my experience anyway, of, of how well those fish do and how they grow. And with, you know, remember these are, these are fish from the wild, unless they've been raised on trout crumble or scrutting number two or whatever it may be in a hatchery situation fish in the wild and any animal in the wild has natural food shifts. When they're little, they're going to eat one thing. When they're teenagers, they're going to eat something else. And when they're adults, they're going to eat something else. So trying to imitate that in a captive environment is pretty hard. And if you get that down, then you will be able to support those fish and, and see what their maximum growth may be. But but without knowing that going in, it, it, it can be pretty tough. And I've run into that with a few different fish in the past. But um, What's their diet in the wild? They're going to eat bugs when they're little. They're going to eat uh, zooplankton, so the microscopic critters that are floating around in the water that you can't see. And and uh, and then when they get older, they will eat like the bloodworms, the brine shrimp, so more of the bigger species of zooplankton. Um, oh, they in, will eat I'm bugs the that are in the plants. What's that? Like an adult in the wild, what are they? Uh, just generally bugs. They're going to eat small fish. They'll eat fry. They'll eat like walleye fry. They'll eat babies of other fish species. They will eat some minnows. Um, again, it, it's going to be a product of their environment, what they're in, but, but big fish eat little fish. And that's kind of how you got to think of that in the big grand scheme of thing. If you're a, a 30 pound fish, you're going to eat a three pound fish. And if you're a three pound fish, you're going to eat a one pound fish. If you're a one pound fish, you're going to eat a quarter pound fish or, you know, however, all the way down it goes. But, but once those adult fish are, out of their bug phase and they can actually take down an entire fish, they, they will. So trying to stay on that food shift is important, but I mean, you guys are very experienced. That's nothing new for you. I'm sure. Oh, that's, that's gamut of fish species. all have different uh, attitudes. Now from the people that I've helped in the past, cause we've had definitely a, a lot of people hashtag Peter, the sunfish guy um, messages <laughs> about food and diet. You know, rotating diet, especially for these species, uh, certainly help. And they have a different digestive system compared to your tropical fish just for the sake of temperature in your tank. So if you have a sunfish, don't put a heater in there. It's just not worth it. Keep your uh, tank as cool as possible. It helps longevity. And they have, uh, in the peak, if you turn up the, the, the temperature and try to match it in a, a lake environment in yours, you're going to kill it without with ammonia because their system doubles down like almost like it's a goldfish of the amount of excrement they put in the tank. So keep your tank cool. And just like you said, um, bloodworms. But if you can, uh, wean them, uh, rotate it, never get rid of bloodworms. But a cichlid-based pellet formula is real high in protein. And that really is, again, they're, they're a type of cichlid. I'd certainly 
put that in a rotation of uh, diet. Uh, cichlid pellets. Um, again, flakes a bit harder just because it's not something else they can hit or react to. And you can train off of a pellet pretty easily just by, you know, throwing a, a pellet and splashing the water and it gets their attention. So it's not too hard to train onto a cichlid pellet, but always rotate your diet. Even uh, throw some uh, tubaflex worms. I found out it goes a long way sticking to the side of the glass. Jimmy's like, how, how, how do you fatten them up for the winter? No, stop it, Jimmy. <laughs> I'm just thinking shore lunch or chicken bake. <laughs> I will say that one fish get too large to keep in an aquarium, depending on the species, and you cannot release them back into the wild. Shore lunch has come into play. Oh, <laughs> and we've, uh, we've and the fish said blueberry pancake. We've had a good one. So there's <laughs> just just to share this with you, Mandy. Uh, the um, convict cichlid is the rabbit of the aquarium uh, l- lifestyle. And we always, you know, pick on people. It's like, oh, I have two convict cichlids. So you're, you're telling us you have 30. Yeah. Right. It's, it's always a joke because they're, they're one of the hardiest fish species in uh, the aquarium hobby. They breed absolutely like rabbits overnight, and they just never stop breeding. And, you know, people have uh, asked, well, what do you do with them? And then we just sent them a fish recipe as a, as a joke. <laughs> we told them it was a joke. You know, little little salt, lemon, <laughs> Lowry seasoning salt goes a long way. Talk about chicken nuggets there. Oh, there was someone that was asking about reptiles, right? Turtles like fish. There you go. There you go. If if it so goes, goes down. Did toilet bowl once and like they bred in the toilet? Yes, they actually did an experiment. What they did is they plugged the uh, the back uh, toilet uh, spot so they couldn't like go down the drain, and then they they just emulated. They put a bubbler uh, sponge filter in a toilet, and they bred in the toilet. <laughs> Uh, don't. That has your... to be a 2020 COVID story, isn't it? No, don't, no. It was before <laughs> that. Someone should check on those people during quarantine because they're not okay. Here, Who knows what happened? Here's my thought: is, is I sure as hell wouldn't want to walk up in their yard because where are they doing their business? Are they doing it like the dog out in the front yard or what? Because if your toilet's all plugged up with fish, yeah, just, no. I'm just saying. Maybe they had like three three bathrooms. Oh, okay, like my. Or just bought a toilet and Could put be. water in it. Who yeah. knows? Too much time on their hands, but. All right, so next one would be uh, breeding. So, again, we we freeze over in the winter. So, like, paint us through spring because I'm assuming that's when stuff starts. How does the breeding cycle work? For sunfish, they're typically not going to start breeding until water gets up in the upper 60s to low 70s. And Minnesota has a wide array of temperature shifting in the spring. So southern part of the state, we could have bright and sunny leaves on the trees. And the northern part of the state, you're still driving on three feet of ice. So, I mean, there's there's great temperature variation between the areas of the state. And with that, in some lakes in the southern part of the state, we'll see sunfish start breeding May, mid-May, early May even some years. And then in the northern part of the state, they're not going to be breeding until the end of June or into July. So it, it completely is weather dependent on on where things are at. So when lakes start to thaw here in, in Minnesota and what generally happens is the water under the ice is, you know, low upper 30s, low 40s pretty much all year. When things start to thaw, water warms up, you'll start to see some of that growth of vegetation again. And, you know, kind of the 
the turning over of the lake where the lake kind of solidifies itself into its condition that it's going to be in the summer, veg starts to grow, and then we'll see some of those fish start to build their nests and wait for that water to warm up and things move in. So you know, again, it, it depends on the weather, it depends on the year, it depends on the location of the state, but but typically it's not going to be until that weather or the, the water is upper 60s, even low 70s. Okay. Do they absolutely need that cold to trigger a spawn? Do they? I mean, do they absolutely need that cycle, or are they kind of like some of the other fish where if you just keep them fat and happy, they just breed no matter what? You know, there's a lot of a little bit of both. There are some situations where fish, as you well know, will breed whenever, wherever, because they feel like it on a Tuesday. But with native game fish in a natural environment and those are the two those are the two words i'm going to stick by native game fish natural environment that seasonal shift does trigger uh their pheromones and what actually is a big player in it too is the daylight cycle so you know just like plants or anything else that that as days get longer their pheromones start to trigger in so it's different biological triggers that will push them into spawning so you know we always say with with walleyes they're just the most common thing we spawn in minnesota that it's water temperature and it's daylight it's both of those two together and you can't really have great success with only one of those so so if 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 you're in a captive environment you know you may be able to get them to breed um but i I would think it would be it would be tough uh, because you need to create all those triggers to make them naturally form their egg mass. Um, you may be able to do that with, depending on how crazy people get. I mean, people may be injecting steroids. They may be working with, with daylight hours and all that too. It just, it's possible, but, but for its most effectiveness, again, in a natural condition for native fish, it would be water temp and then that daylight period. So how does this actual spawning occur? Um, what, what do they do for those that are listening? So sunfish in Minnesota are are um, looking for sandy areas within emergent vegetation. So that would be bulrush, um, not so much cattails because cattails grow so dense. So bulrush, river bulrush, even flowering rush, if you're up on invasive species, is pretty good spawning habitat. Um, anything that provides some structure and allows fish to move within it. They'll also spawn in just sandy areas too, but um, but we the importance of vegetation is is not um, I guess is is more than I can ever give it credit to the, the importance of veg. So the males will actually build the nest. That's one of my favorite trivia questions. If I go in and talk to schools or at a fair or something, uh, my favorite trivia question, along with is the bald eagle really bald? Because that's a great one too. Um, do you think the females or the male bluegills build a nest? And 99% of everyone will say, oh, the females do it. And I get to say, no, you're wrong. It's the males. So the males will actually build and defend nests. And it's pretty cool for bluegills, especially the hierarchy that those fish have within their system. So the largest bluegills are kind of king boss bluegill. They're going to look for the prime spawning habitat, which is going to be the the best area they can find. And then all the other little bluegills want to try and get as close as they can to where that prime spot is. But the male bluegill, the largest males, will find it and defend it. And they'll build what looks like like the surface of a moon, just craters. And if you've ever been in 
a lake in you know late May, early June, you'll often see in the shallow area there's going to be just it looks like Bigfoot came and walked through and left footprints all over. <laughs> but it's yeah. actually bluegills will create. They'll use their tail and they'll fan out any of the detritus like leaf matter or you know small sticks or whatever it may be. They'll use their tails and they'll fan out a little circle that's probably you know ten inches or so wide. And then they will hover right over the center part of that nest and they will defend anything that comes into it, which makes fishing for them extremely easy when they're spawning. So you kind of have to count on responsible anglers to not be pulling big male bluegills off off their nest all the time. Um, So then the females will come in and decide which male seems worthy enough of her egg mass and she'll deposit that egg mass in the nest. Um, The male will fertilize at that time and then they'll hatch. The male will sit there and defend until those eggs hatch, which is generally about five days to a week. Um, once they're once they're laid, they'll hatch, and then that male will will at that time leave. Um, you know, and sometimes, at least I've seen it in some lakes too. It's like there's one male left that doesn't realize that the party left, like that his eggs are gone, and he'll stay there forever. So it's you know there's there's some psyche going on there, I'm sure too. But but typically it's the male that does all the work, the nest building, the defending. The female will come in, lay her egg mass, and leave. And the male is left to take care of it all. And I can confirm it's very cool. Again, I lived on a clear lake. So I I was on a big bluff. So you get to look down. And in the spring, you look at the bank. And it literally looks like the whole beach is polka dotted. Because you'll see these perfectly circular nests built in sand. And these large sunfish over top of them guarding them. It's it's so much fun. It is really cool. It's, It's, you know, something that I don't think a lot of people pay attention to and, and see and know what it is. But if you do, it, it's the coolest thing. And it's fun to you know, kind of mess with them a little bit too, because you can throw a rock or something and those fish will just go crazy that, you know, to watch them defend. And then their neighbor who's also defending his little 10 inch square will come too far into, you know, the boundary and then they'll have a little fish fight and kick each other back to their spot. And then they'll both just sit there and stare at each other. So, I mean, it, it's, it's pretty cool. You've got to be a special kind of crazy to sit there and watch male bluegills on their nest all day and be completely entertained. But I am that kind of special crazy. So <laughs> I'll and, say that it's pretty cool. And it's not that you even threw the you know, the rock into the nest. It's even anywhere in the vicinity of them noticing and they'll have to come, you know, try to boss out the situation. It's a lot of fun. Yep. So, so where are the lazy females at this time? I mean, they, they roll in, they drop their eggs, they say, see ya. And, and all of a sudden he's a single father. What's the deal? Well, they do their fair share of work by building that egg mass. And, I mean, they're going to have 80,000 eggs in their body to uh Oh, to so they've been be through the buffet building. eating. So they yeah. are going to be cruising wherever they can to find food. Um, and at that time, it's mostly going to be along the weed edge. Um, they're going to be out a little deeper and uh, just kind of hovering and eating and waiting for everything to feel right. I, I like how you stick up for the women there. I just was trying to start a fight. Yeah, no. How dare you, Jimmy? Really. <laughs> Got to be so mean or, to our guests. Well, she won't tell me the secret where Bigfoot is. So I'm, I'm still. I'm t- well, I'm giving you clues. See, he walks in the water in the spring. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I, I'm just concerned about how is Bigfoot after this whole COVID thing. I mean, who got to take him home? Who, who, uh, you know, if you're all on no, home, no, well, he's during he's COVID in Minnesota. It's been really well documented that the n- number of people that have been enjoying natural resources, walking, hiking, biking, fishing, hunting, everything is pushing numbers that we haven't seen in the state for years. So the amount of people out and about cruising, looking for Bigfoot and bugging him when he's just wanting to rest 
are quite high. So I would say he is deep, deep in the woods somewhere farther than he's ever had to retreat in the past. So you're saying Vergus, right? Uh, maybe. <laughs> somewhere. Maybe like Nevis, Northern Nevis ne- or Northern something. Nevis. There you go. Out by the ATV trails. <laughs> yep. Um, now, again, we that's in the wild. So we, we do have a little uh, a bit of insider in the aquarium. How we've seen these with different people I've helped in the past and got successful spawns off of these, especially with green sunfish. Uh, the others I uh, have not had any luck with, but I'm assuming it works the same way in the aquarium is again, the temperature does help induce in a artificial environment. And again, you have to have a really sizable aquarium to get this done minimum of 75 gallons. I would certainly recommend if you have the space to do 150, 300 gallon, the more space you have is essentially the bigger and more centered a territory you can be. Sand is required. They're not going to do this on just a uh, gravel bottom. You would have to have sand and make sure it's crazy thick. We're talking three, four inches of sand because they're going to whip the sand around the uh, aquarium making that nest. So again, temperature inducing. So if you want to, you know, do a water change that puts the water a little colder. And then over the week, you know, turn up the temperature three degrees, you know, four degrees slowly. And as that slow rise, uh, I haven't had the light issue, but again, most people have their light on during the day, off during at night. So I don't know what that affects, but the big one in artificial settings is barometric pressure. If you're sitting there at home and a storm's coming in, that's when they're going to spawn every time, at least trying to do artificial uh, settings. And then once they get to spawn uh, and you're not doing complete water changes, there's a lot of hormones in the water and they can continue from time to time. But generally, it goes in sessions, and then they're done for a while. It's a it's a lot of fun to see. Have nice uh, nice amount of space and places for the females to hide. Logs are uh, a nice uh, article, so they they have places to to move around. Obstacles in the tank, but uh, definitely sand. Make it thick, and uh, try to use those recommendations. And again, document it because there's not a ton of people doing this in captivity. And if they are, it's going to be I don't know. Is there farms that uh, that are doing this for the DNR? Is it just mainly walleye and some other species like sturgeon? Uh, we found that sunfish tend to do really well on their own. Uh, we don't stock any sunfish. So with that, we're not raising any uh, in external hatcheries or farms or anything like that. There are uh, quite a few licensed dealers and growers in the state, but to my knowledge, they are all harvesting from the wild. Um, and I don't know of anyone that is doing any captive breeding. Now, I know in other states where they've tried to do a different uh, farming for whatever purposes, it's almost chemi- uh, exclusively chemically induced in the water. They, they try to put hormones in the water, yeah. much like they do for like uh, Siamese algae eaters are quite common because they just they can't get them to normally consistently breed in, in a artificial environment, even if it's a pond in Florida. Um, I've had them uh, breed in my tank now three times over eight years. <laughs> and the last, I've had literally the last uh, two times have been in the last month. So I have no idea what I'm doing. I, I don't know if I can re- replicate it. But again, it's very difficult. And they, they induce hormones in the water. Um, there's not a lot of safe ways to do that in the home aquarist. And I never recommend that if you can help it. So, well, and once they once they do spawn too, I mean, one of the one of the biggest predators on fish and fish eggs is other fish. So, you know, throw that in there as well. If if you do end up with fry somehow in your tank, I would think it's 
<laughs> what goes without saying, but I'll still say it because I just can't help myself, but to get those adult fish out of there and make sure that they don't get eaten right away. So in Minnesota, we have a different environment. So how does what we'd like to call hibernation happen, which I don't understand how uh, fish would quote unquote hibernate like a traditional creature, like burying themselves or something like that. But again, how do they handle the, the winter transition and live out throughout the winter? Well, fish don't hibernate, and I will have this argument with my dad and his old-timer buddies for many, many years. That, Thank you for like, clarifying. Northern pike do not lose their teeth. <laughs> northern pike do not bury themselves in the mud, and that lose was kind of one of the teeth? old wives' tale that was, you know, oh, they just lose their teeth and they bury themselves in the mud and they wait till spring. That and is no, the craziest thing I've ever heard of. How do you how do you ice fish? You know, how does that work? <laughs> Well, that's why they don't bite in the winter because all their teeth are going and they're buried oh. in the mud. It sounds like they need so, an excuse. More things down here than anything else. Yep, and it's you can laugh, but it's that's like a real. There's that kind of crazy running around loose. There truly is, and but it doesn't. They do not lose their teeth. They do not hibernate. Um, when lakes freeze over, and you know, fish will continue to move around. You know, even though there's a lot of snow on the lake and there's ice, light still does penetrate. So it's not pitch black. They're moving around. They're gonna slow down a little bit. Their movement, their metabolism is gonna slow down. But they they don't freeze solid. The lakes don't freeze solid. Some do. In that case, everything will die. But but um, you know, there's often less than three feet of ice on the lake. So they're, they're fine moving around They're They're still going to eat. They're not going to have the abundance of places to hide because a lot of the vegetation will, will die and drop down, but otherwise they're just doing their normal thing uh, in their winter home, cruising and looking for food. Now in the aquarium environment, I don't have friends that have put these in ponds and if they do, it's always going to be out of state where they have these things where they make their own game fishing ponds, which is really common in southern states. We really don't do that in Minnesota, and I'm pretty sure that there's laws preventing that in a lot of situations. But again, there's no documentation that I have. But like for instance, koi and goldfish often winterize even in uh, you know ca- Canadian environments, and what they refer to in the hobby is like that quote unquote. Um, hibernation is literally just their metabolism slowing down. So at that 50-degree mark, koi and goldfish really don't eat much. They, they slow down. They'll, they'll, they'll still interact. They'll still move around. They're very sluggish. But you can go a month without feeding them at all. In fact, I've had people that don't feed them out through the entire winter and just let them, you know, anything they can find in the tank is enough for them to fuel off of and there are, or just fat deposits all winter. Because, again, they're not moving around. They're not working, worrying about predators. They're more or less in a sizable pond that they can just lay around in. And by spring, uh, they're lean, hardy, and hungry. Um, yep. Again, with these, like I said there's no cover. They have to worry about predators. They still eat. Clearly, we go out sun, uh, ice fishing. And for those that don't know, because we've had uh, questions on this, uh, we some people live in these beautiful climates where there's no such thing as lakes frozen over. So... We have people that drive on the ice. The ice goes, you know, up to two feet thick in some seasons. Drive on the ice with ice houses, drill a hole through the ice, and fish out of a, you know, six to eight inch ice hole, or even 12 inch ice hole, and catch fish throughout the winter. It's a lot of fun. People have uh, parties on the ice. There's uh, certain risks, but as long as, as long as you 
know the uh, inches of ice if the lake is commonly used and refreeze or if there's something like you know uh springs or a, or a river flowing in there's risks to uh to go off of but again they do eat throughout the winter otherwise we wouldn't get any bites and i i love that i'm gonna like get a get that meme going of like teeth falling off and burying themselves in the mud <laughs> that is my favorite thing in the world i wish it would happen to my ex-wife <laughs> That he wasn't going to talk about his ex-wife. I, I don't yeah. know. That. I was warned I couldn't say anything. So. Go. We're going to have to get a T-shirt soon. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you know what? We'll give her all the money for it. Oh, That's what we'll do all the proceeds. All the go, proceeds will go, go to the tears of your ex-wife. That's right. That's hilarious. <laughs> um. So, what other things uh, are are we missing of a uh, of basic care? So, in an aquarium environment, because again, we're every aquarist is trying to do their best to emulate some sort of natural uh, territory. Um, we got breeding down, food, uh, size. You talked about some of their curiosity and aggression. Um, if you have those moles, uh, I've had scabs bitten off that were, you know, because when you're in the water swimming, scabs swell and they just come and rip it off. You're not piranhas, people, but they're curious and <laughs> always always looking for a meal. I did get at one of my, you know, in my job, I always kind of keep track of the calls that make me laugh and the the customers that I'll never forget. And I did get a call um, about a lake that was close to our office that the the homeowner was really concerned about piranhas in her lake. And she did not know that when they bought this cabin that there were actually piranhas in the lake. And she was pretty angry that no one told her that there were piranhas. And she was calling to see what she could do about it. And if DNR would come out and net the piranhas out of her lake and I had her take a picture and send it to me and it was bluegills and she was not very impressed and didn't really want to believe me that they were not an actually piranhas and it was a native fish and that that's just something that she's going to have to deal with and welcome to being a lake homeowner <laughs> but but she was convinced that they were piranhas and was not happy about it what was her name Hey, I'm just wondering. Pretty sure it was his ex-wife. Actually. I was putting my ex-wife. We'll we'll just call her Karen. There you go. Don't be a Karen. She's very much a Karen. Don't yes. don't be a Karen. Um, now in the natural habitat, like we we mentioned, different attitude in the lakes and streams. They uh, again, they're they're lower on the food chain. Again, they're smaller fish. Their eggs are always sought after by different predators and catfish. Um, but in the a, you know, home-based aquarium, they are very much a cichlid. They're very curious, uh, territorial, especially when, uh, if you can get them successfully trying to even build a nest. Um, make sure that for minimum requirements, 55-gallon, uh, if you have any type of uh, other fish in the tank, they do have to be of equal size or higher. Otherwise, you would have to uh, densely populate the tank so there's not uh, lowers the aggression with cichlid species. Um, that takes a ton of filtration, and again, 55 is bare minimum. 75 or higher is recommended, and if you're breeding, definitely 150, 300, because again, you need that uh, that base surface so they can make a nest and leave females alone. And Anything I would I would throw in there too that you know, sunfish, their natural presence in the water column is going to be suspended. They're not. Top orientated, they're not bottom feeders. They are suspended within the water column. So knowing that it's important to make sure you have some sort of structure for them to hide in, um, 
you know, I guess in, in the tanks that I've had, those three foot long flowing plants that, that start, you know, and you can kind of anchor them and then tie them off to somewhere else. Those tend to do really well. It gives them something to hide in that middle part of the water column. Wonderful. Jimmy, Adam, am I missing anything on uh, base fish requirements? Well, I'm just thinking, would it just be easier just to seal up your basement and just throw some sand in your basement and fill it up full of water? I mean, that we could work towards that. But yeah, it's incredible how much um, work goes into trying to keep sunfish that people have done over the years. And uh, the only time I ever really see it is uh, I've seen it at some restaurants where people have had a, a nice display of, of the local native fish and stuff. So uh, it's very, very... Very, very beautiful when they do that. Now, I think the, uh, again too, and I mentioned it earlier, but if if the interest is green sunfish, those little buggers are jumpers. Um, they they will jump. Green sunfish and northern pike are like the first fish to jump out of a enclosure. I can test that till even live wells catching them, and they do that right in the yep. boat. But now let's go down the, the legalities because again, this podcast is for everyone. We have people across the world that are listening to this maybe have some access to our North American sunfish in other countries. But again, we want to stress that if you're ever going to have a native species, even if it's purchased elsewhere, you must be the person to find out your local regulations in your state, uh, province, or territory in your country. Um, do your homework first before it. Know your, know your laws. Never take any uh, fish species, aquatic life, anything from your aquarium and put it into a natural waterway. There's no excuse for that. That's how you know disease happens, invasive species. It's never a good a good option. And uh, in Minnesota, what are some of the uh, requirements that we have? Okay, so yeah, thanks for mentioning that. That it's so different. And you know, those of you that were on really early, we did chat a little bit about Minnesota has some of the tightest restrictions. And you know, you can say right or wrong or whatever, but to understand how to follow the regulations, I always think it's really important to understand why they're in place. So Minnesota's got an incredible value of natural resources. It's, you know, our tourism base, our, our livelihood, what keeps us all sane when it's dark for six months out of the year. Um, so we try and do everything we can to protect that. One of the biggest threats to any native environment is invasive species. So these, these rules and regulations are put into place with that um, goal of protecting our native species in mind, that we don't want things brought in from some other country that are gonna, that's going to compete with our native habitat and outcompete our na native species. We want to maintain what we have. So, so, you know, again, they may seem overbearing for those of you that aren't in Minnesota, but it's just important to understand why they are there to try and to try and protect. So legally, um, the best reference, if you have any questions on any of this, is going to be the Minnesota DNR website and the fishing regulations. And on my computer screen right now, I actually have our web page up and our fishing regulations up. But, and we will have um, those in the show notes below for you guys to click on for Minnesota. But again, you have to do it for your area. We have so many people. Absolutely. And again, in, Absolutely. In, and that goes for it's, any fish, not just our native fish. You should know that if something's banned in your state or uh, certainly controlled. Don't uh, don't expect that, uh, you know, even your pet store to know all that. No, oh, and any of you that are gardeners, that's the exact same thing. I mean, you can get, you can order yellow iris in Minnesota. 
it's 100% illegal to plant yellow iris in Minnesota because it's an invasive species. And some of these gardening companies for a while, you would order blue flag iris, which is the native Minnesotan plant, and they would send you a complimentary yellow iris as a thank you for ordering. So, I mean, it's it's not unique to the fish industry. It's, it's every industry that if you're gardening, planting trees, flowers, water gardens, whatever it may be, Make sure you're responsible enough to know what you're buying and what you intend to do with that. And if things go bad, how you intend to dispose of it. So, um, but with fish, it is, if you are purchasing game fish, and there's a huge, a huge difference right there in just game fish. Some fish in Minnesota are protected by regulations and some are not. So when I say game fish, it's going to be those fish that are commonly sought after by anglers. Um, and I mean, when I was little, I was told, well, if it's kind of a game to catch those fish, then they're game fish. So fishing, if you're whatever you're going to fish for, um, non-game fish are going to be those fish that, that typically aren't targeted by anglers. So some of your minnows, some of your, you know, carp or minnows, but, so let's but some of those fish that just you tank. don't catch. I was going to say, let's your stickleback let's... tank. So your stickleback Perfect. tank is a non-game fish. What, <laughs> so what about if you want to keep a stickleback in an aquarium... You knock yourself out. They are fun. Um, they are fun, actually, and they're pretty hard to kill, and that's what makes them even more fun. <laughs> so, uh, what do you consider um, bullheads? Bullheads are not protected either, so they are non-game fish. So in Minnesota, if, if you if you want to have an even more headache to top on or add on top of your COVID fatigue headache, some of these regulations are not cut and dry. There's There are some gray areas. And so you kind of have to, you know, depending on how deep you want to get into this. And, and that's, that's going to be the frustrating part on some of this is it does kind of circle back. So, um, but bullheads are non-game fish protected. They're considered rough fish. Um, but then it is also illegal to transport live fish from a body of water. So that's kind of where it, it kind of backtracks a little bit of there is no actual clear thing. And then if you go into our fishing regulations, it is actually legal. And if anyone's on, do you have like a live, you have a live chat, right? I certainly do. I think you should give a free t-shirt away to the first person. <laughs> See how I'm giving your profits There you away? go. I'm good for a t-shirt. That can Google the Minnesota fishing regulations. And it's a PDF file. And if you go to page 35, and you can tell me what the age on page 35 is about keeping fish. So ready, set, go. Seven. But so there are some there are some issues where, you know, the, the fish is not protected, but yet our own fishing regulations say that it's illegal to transport live fish. So you've kind of got to you know, figure out <laughs> which rule you want to break maybe. Um, but there there are ways to uh, to go about that. Let me know when someone finds page 35 of the DNR fishing regs. So, so is it okay um, if I give myself the t-shirt because I have it open? Let's let's say I, I feed my bullhead a roofie. And <laughs> that's joking. We're joking. No, I'm not. Okay. And anyway, so you you feed your bullhead some roofies and he's kind of drugged out. Is that transporting live fish? Or I mean if I want to take a take a bullhead with a roofie. You can't chloroform your bullheads, all right? No. <laughs> well, and you know, bluegills or bluegills, bullheads. Sometimes you will see in your bait bucket. So if you were to go buy a scoop of fathead minnows from a bait dealer, and I've done this many, many times, and I always look at what exactly I get in my scoop, 
I will get sticklebacks, I will get bullheads, I will get common shiners sometimes, and then I've got quite the deal, and I'll get fathead minnows, and it's all kind of lumped together. And that's, you know, sometimes a fault of, of uh, bait dealers not checking their traps real well, not knowing what they're selling, not sorting properly, whatever it may be, but, but you do get a lot of different species when you go buy fish. So, All right. so, you know, that's, that's one way, but. So we have Joey six fingers that found, <laughs> I, I love that name, by Joey. the way, uh, 16 <laughs> years or older. And I'm, uh, if you don't mind, I'll read this aloud. Uh, yes, please. Again, about fish for the aquarium. If you're 16 or if you are older than 16, you can transport live fish for the display of home aquarium. Only if you purchase the fish from an authorized aquaculture license and have documents as the sales receipt to prove it. Youth age. Okay, so that's what we were talking about before. Okay, so make sure if you have it, you need to prove where you got it from, and you need to make sure you keep that receipt. And, and I'll, then I'll get into the next that. part is the next part is the kicker, though. I'll get into that in just a moment. Uh, youth age sixteen and younger can legally transport certain live fish for display in a home aquarium. If so, if you're younger than sixteen. They if legally caught the fish among the following species, largemouth, smallmouth, rock bass, yellow perch, crappie, bluegill, pumpkin seed, green, orange, butter sunfish, black, yellow, and brown bullhead. No more than four fish of each species can be transported at one time. All fish are 10 inches or, uh, or less in length, and fish are not transported in the water taken from any lake or stream. You must bring bottled or tapped for transportation due to invasive species. So... What there you're you saying go. is, I need to bring like uh, like a, a nephew a or kid. something, and then <laughs> we do your to, dirty work. We need to do some hustling. <laughs> I got four kids. There you go. There you go. And not one of them's got a driver's license. You need to fish mule, so they'll be walking with him in a bottle of Aquafina. I love this actually because it keeps it fun for kids. Honestly, because well, and- that's who you were, were trying to get the audience in for anyway. So right, and the the point is that if you're taking something to have in a home aquarium. The purpose of that home aquarium generally is education, one way or the other. I mean, and and uh, you guys, I'm sure, will admit that you learn something from your aquariums every single day. 100%. I know I learn something from mine every single day. So, you know, and that's kind of where this gets at is that it is designed to get kids interested, you know, and, and make sure that they're learning something and respecting it too. And, and they're not turning into gluttons. You can't go and harvest, you know, a thousand fathead minnows and try and cram them in a 10 gallon tank and then kill them all and wonder what happened. So, I mean, there, there's regulations on that. Um, So this is, this is an important part for Minnesota to lay out, to uh, make sure that we have the size, we have the species, we have the method and we say you can't take water from the lake. And that's that t- can taking water from the lake is the same regulation that comes in with bait, bait transfer. If you're fishing with a flow-through bucket in the lake, you have to make sure if you want to keep your bait, you dump out all your water and you have another gallon tank of water, a gallon of water in your truck or something that you can swap out that lake water with. Again, for the spread of invasive species. So, so despite all of the the licenses and the the receipts and everything else, that all still applies. But if you're younger than 16, you go out, you get yourself a tank, and you get some bass and bullheads and bluegills and call it good. So, I mean, there's and that's there's there's so little <laughs> that can that's totally cut and dry and only one way because we have this statement in there and that's in our fishing regs and that is the law. So. I mean, it, you know, with all of this too, you kind of have to keep that in mind. That, sure. 
So you know, like, I have two. I have two tanks in my house. They're my kids. One's my sons, and one's my daughters. Sure. And they have game fish in there, and it's <laughs> it's incredible. It's a blast. So. So you, um, you basically need a permit to get a permit. What's up? You no. basically need to get a per- you need a permit to get a permit kind of thing. Well, unless you're unless you're a kid, and then you don't have um, kids, Jimmy. But, Jeez, so, no, I'm done. <laughs> and you don't need a fishing license if you're under sixteen either. So yeah. you know, if if it's a kid tank, if it's if I argue that I'm a kid of any age, I'm not going to get real far with with a conservation officer right. or any law enforcement thing. Then you would need to go down that path of you know that first paragraph of if you're older than sixteen, you can transport them if you can prove where you bought them and you have your receipt. So and what it says about authorized aquaculture licensees, that's a whole nother page. So if you have any more Google enthusiasts, you can Google the DNR webpage. And oh, there, it is there's no t-shirt for this one. <laughs> there's no more shirts to give away. <laughs> but, but if you Google mndnr.org and there's a search box, once you get to that um, Minnesota DNR webpage, and if you just type in aquarium in that search bar, it'll, it should bring up a page that is just titled pet and aquarium businesses. And that's going to give you all sorts of entertainment in the wee hours of the morning that you can just cycle through forever. But, but what it's going to tell you basically is that in order to sell um, fish in Minnesota, you have to go through a licensing process. And there's many, many that do. And what the primary purpose they're serving is, is to provide fishing in lakes that are not managed by the DNR. So in Minnesota, Minnesota Department of Natural Resources section of fisheries, which is what I work for, um, takes the responsibility of managing the lakes that have public access, lakes that are open for all residents of Minnesota to use and enjoy. And part of our way of managing that lake is to ensure that there is a fishable population of native fish in those lakes. Now, if you live in the middle of the woods, because you're looking for Bigfoot again, and you've got this, <laughs> this tiny little lake on your property, and you want to fish that, and so you call DNR and say, hey, will you come check my lake out, and will you come stock fish in it? If it doesn't have a public access, and if it is not accessible and usable by all people of the state, DNR isn't going to have anything to do with that lake. But if you still want to f- buy bluegills or whatever, walleyes or northern pike or whatever it is, there's a list of licensed growers within the state that their business is stocking these lakes that people want to stock all on their own. So they're making their own little fishing pond. So if you've ever been to like a, a trade show where they've got the trout fishing pond, for example, those are privately owned. It's a privately owned business, privately owned fish that they've raised and purchased on their own from some licensed grower. So, so that's kind of the main area where these licensed producers or growers in Minnesota are targeting is these smaller lakes that are not managed by DNR and people want fish in their lake for whatever reason. So typically where they're getting those fish from are lakes where they have as part of their licenses sought permission to harvest these fish from. So they're often wild wild sources. Um, sometimes they're private lakes that they've had that for somehow or some way fish got into there and they've been using that as their brood source lake. Um, I, like I said, as I said earlier, I can't think of any of them that are breeding captive fish from captive broodstock 
Um, and typically it's what they're stocking is bass, largemouth bass, bluegills, crappies, walleyes. Um, sure. There's one that does muskies, but he gets fried from the DNR. And so that, that's, so that's getting kinda, real in the weeds. What's that? That's getting real in the, in the, uh, certainly in the weeds for, uh, for some of yeah, our audience, for sure, but, but it's certainly ne- necessary to know. Right. So when you're Googling late at night, just know that that's where this is going is targeted more for that because that's the industry in Minnesota. So, so again, um, if, if you're in Minnesota and you are above 16 and you want to purchase yourself some native fish because that's the options you have, I believe there's like three pet stores in the metro area. Um, one is uh, actually in Forest Lake, Forest Lake Pets, that do have the game fish on hand. Keep your receipt always for the entire life of the fish because if someone uh, decides to audit you for some reason, you need to prove that you've purchased those in the past. So keep those in record uh, you know, next to your uh, you know, dog shot paperwork because don't lose those for sure. And right. that would be the, uh, the way to handle it responsibly. And again, never let those species back into a native lake or waterway ever. No. And if you, if you are another Googling enthusiast and you want to find a list of those, all of the businesses that are licensed through the state of Minnesota, and it would be the same, I would assume in most other States. Um, if you go to that, the state's registrar, so where all of the cosmetology and dental and all the all those people have their licenses filed with the state they should also have a file of private aquaculture and with that file at least in minnesota it will say the business name the business address and the species that they're licensed for so that would be you know in case you if you know if you don't remember where that pet store was you can always go back to the the state registrar and find that listing of licenses, just as you would if you want to check up on a contractor that wants to replace your tile floor, whatever it may be. Make sure that that business is licensed. And that's, again, being the responsible enthusiast, it's just another step that you have to take to make sure that, that you're not going to get in trouble for it. I, ha- I have a question. Adam wants to know how much trouble he can get in. <laughs> okay. questions of legalities. Oh no. So, so can I like okay, so what's been a latest craze is like um the pygmy sunfish from like Florida and that. And I was interested in getting those. Can I bring those into Minnesota? They're not gonna survive in Minnesota winter, but technically they're like a native US fish. What are the rules on that? Cause like I'm I don't know for sure. So um, Adam, I can I follow think that up. I go can, ahead. They have a a list of banned species and stuff that you cannot import from other states. Uh, it goes by genres. Um, like, for instance, I don't believe we can even move or transport any type of uh, salamander or axolotl species like uh, mud puppies in and out of state. I can certainly uh, provide that list a, as well. That's that's public. That's where, like, for instance, the commonly used in the aquarium twig weather, weather loach is technically illegal in Minnesota. And that's up to date. Uh, quite often. So I'll get that to you, but uh, do you have any other details on that, Mandy? Well, on that webpage where, you know, if you go to the DNR webpage and you type in aquarium and it'll come up with that pet and aquarium business, there is a list there um, as well of there's plants and then there's animals. And the plants on this are just as important as the animals, if not more, because they're more apt to survive in the conditions. But a few different species of catfish, um, the red swamp crayfish is on there, and that's one I've got personal experience with. 
um, and snakeheads um, and a bunch of other things. But I, that list is not um, complete by all means. And like Robbie said, there's there's probably many many other species that that those involved with aquarium trades will will be aware of. So I'm I'm not totally sure on on what that exact list is, but that would be another one to you know, dig through the register for because I'm sure there that list is out there. And I will have that in the notes as well, the show notes, because I already have it saved. Good. Perfect. Well, Adam, you got any more questions? No, because that'll get me into trouble if I ask. You're darn right. <laughs> you got to behave. Well, again, Mandy, thanks, uh, thanks again for coming on. But before I let you go, we do have a few uh, random questions that we're saving for the end of the podcast that weren't necessarily sunfish related. So we have up here... Um, are there any restrictions on catching scuds in a public lake or stream and with collecting plants or relocating with the intent of aquarium? So specifically, I, I don't know if scuds is the proper term. Yep. Uh, it, that's the term I use. They're amphipods, good. but I call them scuds because it's easier to say and it sounds cooler than amphipod. A scud is um, very much aquarium, yes. Right. The, you know, there aren't any restrictions on them individually. The problem with collecting scuds is it's going to be really tough to harvest them cleanly. You're always going to have vegetation and you're always going to have water. So if you are looking to harvest them um, from a lake, I would really recommend thinking through your methods and making sure you have a way to rinse them and make sure you transport them in different water. Um, I have had experience with harvesting some, and actually the way I harvested them was off the floor of my boat <laughs> um, and scooping them up and freezing them flat. And and they actually work really well for winter fish food for some of the fish that I've kept. But again, the problem is making sure that, that they're clean. So think through your methods, how you're going to do it, and make. I highly recommend rinsing them and then transporting them in clean water. I, some of the, the rivers, especially because I live in uh, a Perm, Minnesota area, so we have a Autotel River by us. And in the past, because the reason that people want scuds, because normally scuds are a problem in an aquarium, and I don't recommend putting scuds in your aquarium on purpose. They can be a bit of a nuisance for those that have nano-planted aquariums. But if you're doing scuds for the sake of a food culture, a live food culture, there's not a whole lot of better things for some picky fish than making your own like little scuds tank at home. And what I've done is taken a net, just gently scoop the side of a riverbank, and they'll be you'll see them uh, propagate on the net. I just have a water bottle of my own, and I individually pick out scuds with a tweezer and put them in the water bottle. That, that's been yep. my best method. There's none of the other grossness with it because it's, let's say you screwed up. Let's say you didn't rinse your scud and you put something in your tank. That's how you get these crazy bacteria blooms. I've had to right. actually, uh, um, just from me having fishing gear by my aquarium, dripped in, had this crazy explosive bacteria stuff I've never had before, and I had to wipe an aquarium clean. It's uh, There's a lot of stuff that are in native waterways that will explode because you've emulated the perfect environment in your house. So rinse your scuds. Don't take rinse any plant scuds. material. There's a t-shirt. I want to see a rinse your scuds shirt. Rinse your scuds. <laughs> Blueberry pancakes, <laughs> <laughs> yummy, yummy. So that, that was a that was definitely a weird question for sure. <laughs> it's not though, actually. It's a good one. 
Um, I was in Zoob Creations in Plainstow, New Hampshire this past weekend, and they had Death Star- Stalker Scorpions for sale. Adam and Cage is right on the sales floor. So, Adam, <laughs> how you, you've now created a, a, a cult craze. So, in the podcast Dude, before, you Mandy. You can buy them for like 30 bucks. Yeah. In, we're not supposed to have them in Minnesota. Isn't that correct, Adam? We did. I remember we did research during the podcast. We weren't supposed to. And the, it's not necessarily Death Stalkers. There was a special variety of Death Stalkers that you found in the story that went on the ladies' baggage. You got, and that one is, I believe, federally illegal because there's different types of Death Stalker scorpions because it was actually fatal to a lot of human beings. Yeah, it was a 15-minute kill, yeah. Yeah. That's not a that's not a good thing. So Attaboy, Adam. The Death Stalkers you saw, probably legal ones. Even getting a hold of them in accidental methods is a miracle. All right, next one. Um Nope. The next one was about stickleback, and I believe we answered that. So commonly that. commonly in Minnesota, um the three spine stickleback is what's here, and that's been a new aquarium craze as well because they are of, so fun of how they breed. So certainly do your research on that. We'll be doing a future episode on Stickleback because that's been another one by popular demand. And honestly, out of the minnow-esque things that are safe and legal to harvest, that's about the funnest. They're hardy, and they make amazing tube nests. So, um, Yeah, and when you're, when you're looking for Minnesota, what you're going to see is called Brook Stickleback. That's going to be your native fish um, that you'll see most of the literature on in Minnesota. I mean, I've never had a problem just going to a bait store and be like, hey, you got any stickleback? And they'll just give them to you free in a bag. Yeah, because usually anglers will get pretty angry when you give them sticklebacks instead of fatheads. They, they don't appreciate that. No, not a no. <laughs> no. Well, you gentlemen got any other questions for Mandy? You had said something about a, a silver shiner being illegal. Is there protected shiners in Minnesota? Um... Don't remember. Say so you'll have to you'll have to remind my point when I said a silver shiner was illegal. Um, no, I'm just asking in general. Is there any like minnows that are illegal in Minnesota that tell like harvest or anything that are protected? That there are, protected. are some uh, that are listed on the endangered species list. Um, you know, Topeka shiners are always kind of the big one that everyone gets all worried about. That's southern southwestern Minnesota. Um, I'm drawing a total blank right now on any species that are listed on the endangered species list that you would actually see. There are some species of special concern. There's least darters that are listed as a species of special concern, and those would be illegal to have, I think, just based on what the the listing of them would be. But nothing that I can think of that you would commonly see. I can tell you what some of my favorites are if you got more Google enthusiasts that want to look at them. Banded killifish are we awesome. have We have banded killifish in Minnesota. We do. Yeah. Are you kidding? What? Did not know that. Yeah, that is, that actually is, you know, if, if you want to go way off into the weeds again, there's some research out there that says, you know, again, for Minnesota people that are familiar with fish, walleyes are our deal. And it's people always focus on the perch population, which is their primary food source. But there's some research floating around out there that says banded killifish are a better ecological indicator of a lake's ability to support a walleye population than any other fish. So banded killifish are awesome. Um, Our Minnesota banded killifish are probably going to be different than what you may know as an aquarium trade banded killifish. And just like plants, you can have one 
one species of fish can have the same Latin scientific name and 20 different common names. So, so kind of just make sure what you're, what you're looking at. Um, and I'm really bad at remembering my Latin from college and what the Latin name of all these fish are, but banded killifish are super cool in an aquarium. Um, if you're, you know, rock bass for, for the kids aquariums, rock bass are awesome. They're the most easygoing, laid back, great community fish. Um, Iowa darter happens to be my absolute favorite fish of ever. <laughs> and those, those actually do really well in an aquarium. Blunt nose minnows. I had a blunt nose in a tank that I've had, I had for about four years, which is long for a minnow. Um, and that, though, that one was really cool. And he was a bossy little bugger. Um, but, you know, some of those are, are really neat. And, you know, just as you get to know the personalities of your different aquarium fish too, people that aren't total geeks, like I'll use us, um, realize that all those fish have such different personalities and they're really, really cool. And once you watch them for a while, it's, it's just really neat. But, but, you know, outside of those, I can't think of anything that, that you would find that you would have to be worried about. And most of them are, are way South if they are on the list. I only see five here that are listed. So. Yeah. I, you know, if you're, I would, Use extreme caution if you are wandering around looking to collect things in southeast Minnesota trout streams or trout streams in general, southeast Minnesota, northeast Minnesota, or any designated trout stream anywhere else in the state because um, our designated trout streams usually are spring-fed um, they're an active flowing situation where you don't have a lot of those murky backwaters and they just tend to have a real unique fish community in them. And they're not um, very abundant anymore because of um, habitat conditions. So, I mean, kind of just a good rule of thumb, if you're in a really unique habitat situation, you can kind of assume there's something there that's probably protected. So I wouldn't recommend harvesting anything out of a trout stream. If, I mean, that's kind of a safe, just general rule to live by, I think. Wonderful. You had something, Jimmy. I had nothing. No, you're just messing with Adam. Oh, I was just messing with Adam. Wonderful. No, I, I just thought, you know, I asked about bullheads earlier, and I think one of the cool things that I, that I see every every spring is uh, a baby bullhead school that you see near the shores, and they look like a little black moor when they're inch and a half, two inches, and you'll see maybe 100, 200 bullheads schooling together in a large, you know, bigger than a beach ball uh, size mass of just schooling around in the shallow waters. And I think that's just the coolest thing ever. And when I was a kid, and I lived in North Dakota, so I didn't care about the Minnesota DNR, I would uh, just steal some bullheads and put them in my aquarium. But I was seven, and I didn't know better. Hey, that's legal. Yeah, there we go. There you go. Seven and It is. Actually, a bullhead or two in an aquarium will clean up everything. Um, but they will also get super bossy and eat everything and grow fast and turn into jerks. So <laughs> I'm going to keep that. But... Though there have been in in lake situations, when you see those huge mass of bullheads, there's been some lake associations that have kind of taken it upon themselves to remove those big masses. And um, because as bullheads mature, they do tend to uproot sediment, they uproot plants, um, and kind of aren't always the best for a lake ecosystem in high densities. Everything in moderation, including moderation and bullheads. So you know by by harvesting out those young of the year bullheads it, it it isn't a bad thing for the lake i'll put it that way yeah if you had a large net you could easily catch a hundred in a scoop without a problem they make awesome fertilizer 
Wow. Which is which, it, which is an wow. actual approved use for rough fish is fertilizer. I was going to ask. That is approved. So all the all the folks that are spear fishing and are uh, and bow fishing and harvesting carp um, out of the lakes in the primarily in the spring. Hopefully, the use that those are serving is is fertilizer. They they also smoke them, but fertilizer is an approved use for rough fish. That's incredible. There you go. Well, Mandy, there's a, there's a guy down here that they bow fish and then they just throw them in a wood chipper on the fields. And I was like, is that even legal? Yep, they it said is. we can do it. I'm like, yeah, okay. it is. Yep, it is. What is not legal is when you throw them in the ditch right down from the access where you access for, access the lake from. That's that's not legal. <laughs> okay. Would it be legal to throw it in your ex-wife's yard? Yes. It's <laughs> no. <legal. laughs> no. Not unless you plant her flowers first, and then <laughs> you can fertilize those flowers. All right. With a wood chipper. Even. <laughs> All I'll just pull up with a wood chipper and 300 pounds of rough fish and just... <laughs> See, the even, house. even grumpier old men had to ask permission from the DNR <laughs> to do the bit. <laughs> oh, we're all going to heck in a handbasket. All right. Well, well, thanks again, Manny. You got anything for us? You're welcome. No, they, I'm. yeah, it's we can go off in the weeds in all sorts of different directions. So I hope this kind of stayed somewhat on point and, and maybe we learned something or not. I definitely had a blast and and always happy to join you guys again whenever whenever you're short for content. <laughs> Uh, trust me, you've been in high demand for a while. Not, you're, you're by far not short for content, so I'll have to have you on again. And uh, next time, uh, we'll have to have you on for uh, sturgeon caviar. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> joking. Okay, now we're joking. getting the illegal shit. Uh, uh, that yeah, was, now, that was a joke. Come on now. Where did, where's Rob well, going for the, Christmas? To jail. The first time I was on, I, we had hoped that maybe you guys could come back and do a live on-scene podcast from our hatchery this in the spring. And I'm hoping that 2021 will bring, bring uh, that possibility. So, so I did, if I you're did not wimp out. Contact, I did no. not wimp out. I called you. No, you did. Closed. You did. You know, we, we do what we could. Right. So hopefully 2021 will bring us some better opportunities. And, and uh, yeah, I'm always happy to join you guys. You're a lot of fun. And I appreciate what you're doing. Well, thank you, Mandy. And, uh, again, if you guys like what you hear, go to AquariumGuysPodcast.com. On the website, we have a tip jar. You know, we have uh, some merch coming. Support our sponsors. Helps all keep the lights on and keep the podcast going. We really uh, appreciate it. And, again, go to the links in the show notes for the Minnesota DNR to check some of the resources we talked about in the episode. And uh, above all else, call, uh, contact your local DNR, check out their w- webpage, see what's legal before ever trying anything, and never put fish back into a natural waterway from your aquarium. Not unless you use a wood chip. We'll go with that. You oh, know, I, I think we should, you know, in the tip jar, if we make enough money to get a wood chipper, I will film myself fertilizing the lawn at my ex-wife's house. I'll just do that for, for you guys. <laughs> oh. Anyways, until next week, thank you. Thanks, guys. <laughs> Thanks, guys, for listening to the podcast. Please go to your favorite place where podcasts are found, whether it be Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever they can be found. Like, subscribe, and make sure you get push notifications directly to your phone so you don't miss great content like this. Are, are you- <laughs> What's the, what's the safe word? Is there a safe word tonight? Pineapple. <laughs> the safe word. Oklahoma. <laughs> I'm having blueberry pancakes in Oklahoma.
<laughs> you, you know it's great when you have a return guest and then they're asking for the, for the safe, safe word. Because yeah. they know you're going to go there. I'm going <laughs> 